So I'd also very much uh, like to welcome everybody here. A really, really warm welcome uh, to Guy House and to this retreat. And especially if you're new, if this is your first time, I really hope uh, that you can feel, really feel, how very, very welcome you are here. And and that uh, that communicates. And just listening to, to Chris speaking so beautifully and it's, it's funny doing teaching so much and living here and, and uh, could be easy to take all this for granted and, and listening to Chris and and the reminder of what's a- actually obvious to me but if you're new may not be obvious to you of just how much goodness there is here uh, this is as Chris said it's it's a it's a safe place. Uh, there's goodness, there's generosity, there's uh, kindness saturating uh, everything that this place is about. And that's something really precious in this world, really precious. feels to me quite rare. And uh, so I feel uh, very privileged to be here and, and privileged to, to be with you in, in this retreat, in this space, in this space of kindness space of generosity, space of safety. There's a preciousness and a privilege to all of that. And just So there's preciousness and privilege to, to this whole movement that we're un- undertaking together, to be on retreat. And I wonder... Uh, I hope that it's possible to have a sense that you're coming here and you're being here and you're choosing to be here is a a gift that you're giving to yourself. So easy to overlook that. Can you see this is is something absolutely beautiful that, that we are giving to ourselves. And through giving it to ourselves, we are giving it to the world. It's a gift of kindness, and actually that's all that practice is, ultimately speaking. Kindness to ourselves and kindness to the world, in the deepest possible sense. And can I feel that? Can I let that in? Can I open to that perspective of what practice is? And that, um, that, that when I relate to meditation, to being on retreat, to practice, to whatever, it's, it's rooted in that perspective. And so easy, it goes into something else. It's about self-improvement or something. We lose touch with, with, with that underpinning of what, what all this is really about. And then, then there is this ancient tradition, probably, almost definitely I would say, the tradition of going on retreat, putting oneself in a different environment, is, is probably uh, older than history. It goes back to prehistory, pre-written records, certainly. Certainly. So this is something that human beings have been doing from day one. Lost in the the mists of time, this impulse, this movement, calling, feeling called to lay the busyness aside for a period. And to quieten, to let things quieten for a time. And possibly to open to something else. Possibly. Maybe to 
answer the calling of what we feel might be possible for ourselves in this existence, even if I don't know what that is. I just sense that something else is possible. And to ask, to ask very deep questions of, our, of life and of existence. So all this has been, has been going on since uh, before anyone even remembers. Now, I'm aware, and I put that out, and already we're in dangerous territory. Already that's complicated, and I don't know if you can, if you can sense that. Probably lands, just what I've just said, in different places in this hall where 70-something people in here. So how did that land? How does it land hearing that about this, about this time together? What's my relationship with this whole idea of being on retreat? And this whole idea of um, uh, making a container like that? Maybe more importantly, what, what is a helpful way for me to relate to this idea of being on retreat? That's a probably more important question. What's a helpful way for me to relate to this idea of being on retreat? So, very often as human beings, it's really helpful to sanctify something, to make something holy, to set it apart and then step into that to create something in our relationship with something that can be extremely potent and uh, uh, important for us. And sometimes it's really important to not make things special. So, which, what? Special or not special? What's helpful? What's helpful? Do I know myself enough? So if I'm making this special, if my heart and my eyes and my relationship with all this is to sanctify it, to make it special, to make it holy, then it's now I'm entering something tonight. Now here's a sacred space. Here is this crucible, this adventure that I'm walking into. Here is my time of dedication, my time of surrendering, my time of searching. I give myself to that searching. And it's not special at all. Life goes on. You will be sitting and walking and shuffling around and eating and going to the toilet and sleeping and eating again and listening and being quiet. Because sometimes we make things special in, in, in a way that's not helpful for us. So I don't know. Do you understand what I'm, what I'm saying here? Sometimes I need to not make something special because I get hold of the whole idea of retreat and meditation practice in a way that just ties me in knots. And sometimes I really need to make something special. So earlier today, um, in, 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 a, in a group interview, um, a retreatant was uh, pointing out something which uh, I think a lot of people are aware of, uh, who, who do perhaps many retreats, that being on retreat, being in a, 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 an environment like this, with the silence, with practice, etc., there can be, and there often is for people, a kind of falling away of 
of what is not so important in my life. The kind of entanglements and complexities and worries and um, things we get caught up in in our life that actually somehow they take a lot of our time and energy but they're not actually at the most uh, at, at the deepest of what's most important to us. And there's a, there can be over, over time a falling away of that. It's a real gift. It's such a such a precious thing. And that gets quiet, that mud settles. And as it's settling, other uh, aspirations perhaps, or perhaps what's, what we feel more deeply, what's more central to our being, more loved, more core, uh, that begins rising up and showing itself as this other stuff falls away. Our longing, our deepest longing, our deepest aspirations. And again, I'm a it cannot but be with 70 people or 75 in the room. It cannot but be that, again, using those words, it's complex. lands in different places. So this word longing can be very loaded or it could go in fine. Personalities are very different. We, have, we are very different beings and, and we should be. So some people, the language of longing, the movement of longing, is very present in their life, and they can really relate to that. Other people may not even relate to that word. When I say longing, if I'm using that language, I don't just mean a feeling. I don't just mean a feeling. Longing is, in a way, deeper than the feeling of longing. And I'm aware it's Friday night. And for a lot of you, it's been a work week. It certainly has for me. You know, a lot of busyness. It's the end of the week. There's tiredness, etc. Trying to get here, and then suddenly this guy's speaking about your deepest longing. <laughs> so for some people, I know it's going right in and it's touching, and other people, it's just, I'm sorry, I just can't relate right now. All of that's okay. All of that's okay, and it's also okay that we have different personalities and relationship to this word longing and this this whole movement of longing. All that's okay, but I just want to. Say a little, linger on it a little bit. Because I also wonder, despite the difference in personalities and despite the fact that it is the end of a work week for, for m- many people, I wonder in this culture if we've lost the language of longing. Do you know what I mean? How, when, uh, does the culture support that deepest movement of being in us? I saw a, a wonderful film a few weeks ago. Uh, it's called Pina. I don't know if anyone saw it. Did anyone see this? Absolutely amazing. It's about Pina Bausch. She's a, she died a couple of years ago. She was a, um, a sort of avant-garde ch- choreographer and working um, with a, a troupe. Is that the right word? Troupe? Troupe. A troupe of, of ballet dancers o- over many years. And at one point she asked them, she asked her dancers, she says, what are you longing for? What are you longing for? You see the passion they put into, into working on their art. Incredible uh, dedication. She says, what are you longing for? And where does, all this, uh, where does all this yearning come from? And she asked them this. And what was so striking is how rare it was to hear that kind of language. I don't think the culture supports that. We've, we've lost it. We've lost that discourse. We've lost that connection. We don't speak to each other that way. 
And so it's a bit embarrassing maybe when someone says that. Or it just, I just can't connect. I don't know. And if I've lost my longing, or if that feels a little awkward, how is it that that's come about? How is it that that's happened in my life? It's not my fault if it's happened. It's probably not my fault. It's probably the culture's fault, (laughs) I would say. And very hard to talk about this stuff without it landing in the inner critic and someone's maybe thinking, oh, now I should have this longing, which I don't feel. Maybe there's something wrong with me and I'm not good enough. No, no. I just want to raise something. It has nothing to do with judging oneself or where I should be or anything like that. But maybe it's more of an open question. What, what, what do I want? What do you want? What do you want? What do you want in life? What do I want in life? What do I want or you want in, in this week now? And that's a question of love. It's a question of kindness. So different rather than something to judge myself with. What would it be to take care of my longing? In, in this life that I'm taking care of my longing, that's not a demand. It's not a should. It's something about loving ourselves deeply. So longing, wanting, aspiration, desire, uh, all these uh, concepts, really, they're they're a double-edged sword. They're a double-edged sword, and I'm sure that's actually part of the difficulty that we have with them. Part of the, 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 the uh, sometimes hesitation, deep hesitation, we have to, to relate deeply or inquire deeply into our deep longing is because it's a double-edged, a double-edged sword. If I have a deep desire and a big aspiration, high aspiration, that's, go- <coughs> that's going to be painful for me. It cannot not be painful to long is, is, to, is, is to experience the pain of longing. It's also to experience the beauty of longing. And the very force of that longing might open something up. Because it's energy and it's powerful. But there will be pain with it. If I don't go near that, and if I uh, always uh, stay close to a very modest aspiration and not really uh, using this language of longing, well, that too is a double-edged sword. Because maybe there's then not enough energy in the being to discover something, maybe. There's something else, curious, actually. It might be that... It might be if my aspiration isn't, isn't high enough, that the little stresses of every day are actually bigger. They're bigger. They take up more of my whole picture of life. Whereas if I have a bigger aspiration, the little stresses are smaller in that. Do you understand what I mean? Yeah? Anyway, anyway, (laughs) longing changes. What we want changes, and it evolves, and it should, which which is wonderful. Well, I, I remember 
first starting meditation and years ago in, I was in university and I saw a poster for a meditation class and something something and I thought that, that looks that looks cool I thought what I was interested in was calming and concentrating the mind and I was but it turned out to be about 1% of what I really wanted and so that evolves that, that evolves over time but I say all that, and, and it's like, let it be, let it be. What, what are you here for? It's not about me and what I think or anything like that. It's what are you here for? And can you respect what you are here for? It's not my answer, it's your answer. Can you really respect and love what you are here for, whatever that is? Can you open to asking what you're here for and to the answers that might come? Because they're yours, they're not mine and they shouldn't be mine. Okay, so I want to speak a little bit also just about the practices and the teachings that, we're, that we'll be exploring this week. Um, slightly unusual retreat, this. Um, it wasn't... Uh, it wasn't in the description, but you're here now, so I'll tell you. It's not a meta retreat, by the way. A lot of people seem to think it was meta retreat, so I hope you won't be disappointed by that. I don't think you will be. What we're going to be exploring in the practice is working with the emotional life, okay? Working with the emotions that come up in the being, and different approaches to, to working with them. Uh, working with, with, uh, with the emotional life in, in, a, in helpful ways. That's what we're looking for. So that um, in that one is really caring for oneself and caring for one's life. And you think, if you just pause just, just right here and ask oneself, how much of human suffering comes in relationship to my emotions? And in relationship, not being quite uh, in the possession of full ability, skill, capacity to handle well, to work with well my, my emotions. So that's the starting point. Um, how important that is for us as human beings. But it's interesting. So we're going to in a way, kind of be doing one, one approach as a starting point, one approach to, um, to the emotional life. I wouldn't even say that the approach that we're doing on this retreat is, even, is certainly not the only approach that we could take to working with our emotions. Absolutely not. Definitely not. But it's one, and it's what we'll be doing. Um, so I just want to really put that in the context. It's also, I wouldn't even say, the best approach. If there, I don't even think there is a best approach. It's just what we'll be doing. And, I th- and I'm pretty confident that it's, it, it, it will be helpful. Because when we think or reflect on emotionality and our capacity as human beings to know and feel and experience our emotions, I don't think we will ever exhaust the, the ways of looking at emotions, the ways of understanding human emotionality. There's so many different um, takes on that that we can have. So, you know, there are brain scientists and people who understand why we have emotions in terms of evolution and all that, and oh, that's completely valid. That's one angle. Freud 
would say something about why certain emotions arise and what they're da-da-da. Jung broke with Freud, said something very different. Modern psychoanalytic, so many different traditions there, all with different perspectives, different something to say, and then the spiritual traditions and others, uh, etc. Each of these reveal or will reveal something different about the about human emotionality. They will all kind of shine a different light and reveal something different. And they will all allow the experience or encourage the experience of emotions to unfold in different ways. And so that's what we're doing. We're shining a certain light to reveal something in particular, some things in particular. And out of that, it tends to unfold in, in, in particular ways. I can never get to the bottom of understanding human emotionality in toto because it's part of the infinite mystery, the fathomless depth of the psyche. Like it's impossible. It's impossible. Buddhism can't. Neither can a particular school of psychoanalysis or anything. I just can't. It's impossible. So I'm aware in terms of practice that that's unusual, or it may be unusual. Usually one would... Um, come on retreat and probably start with breath practice or metta practice. So we're not doing that. We've got a different approach. Please don't think of it as advanced. It's not advanced. It's not even any more difficult than the breath or the metta. It's just different. It's just a different uh, way in. In terms of the um, unfolding of the meditation instructions, um, they won't be linear, but but we kind of have to take our time saying stuff, so we can't say everything at once. But it won't be linear, so it's almost like getting different pieces and different angles or different pieces of a jigsaw over over the days. So it might get to day four, and, and I'll say something, and you'll say, well, I wish you'd said that on day one, for heaven's sake. But that for someone else, it was really right to hear it on day four, uh, and etc. So we do what we can, we take it in pieces, and the whole thing kind of makes a, a mandala, which... Uh, supports the whole process. But I also want to talk on this retreat in terms of practice on the relationship with practice because that feels really important to me. What's my relationship with meditation practice? So often we bring to it ideals that are not helpful. Ideals and images of what meditation is or should be. So for example, I shouldn't have thoughts. I should be abiding in a calm, thought-free space. And when, if I'm not doing that, then it's not, I'm not doing it right. I shouldn't be distracted, etc. Well, certainly it's possible to be without thought, absolutely, no question. And maybe that will even happen, maybe on this retreat. But that's not the point. That's really not the point of what we're trying to do at all. And it might be, and it probably will be, that you have thoughts most of the time. That you have thoughts most of the time when you're meditating. And you know what? That's absolutely no problem at all. It's completely not a problem. It might actually even be helpful. Will you remember this for seven days? <laughs> Maybe write it down, you know, because this is really important. How much suffering we cause ourselves because of our image of what we think meditation should be. So a question, what am I trying to do when I meditate? What are we trying to do? What's this all about? What am I trying to do? And am I setting up a problem for myself with it? I would say, in answer to that question, what am I trying to do? 
we are exploring and developing ways of seeing experience and ways of relating to experience. We're exploring and developing ways of seeing and relating to experience that lead to freedom and to understanding. And that's what meditation is. Not anything else apart from that. It's a different way of seeing it. So I'm really, uh, and, and we will start on this retreat with, with emotions as the starting point of this, this learning different ways of seeing that unfold freedom and understanding. And what we really want for this retreat is that what we learn here in terms of meditation is transferable. It's usable, especially in terms of emotions. You can be walking down the street and something happens, you can just check in and work with it skillfully right there, quick, like that. I don't have to get in a pretzel position and and all this stuff. It's right there, quick. That's what I would like to, to, we would like to offer. It's portable. So that there is skill and confidence, confidence in relationship to my emotional life, confidence in relationship to what comes up in me as a human being. And that's often the piece that's missing with emotions. I don't feel confident. I feel, yikes, what if I feel this? What if X or Y emotion comes up and I feel overwhelmed or whatever? So a lot of this is, can we move towards a place of actually complete confidence in, in relationship to our emotional life. So that for me is what meditation is. It's not about being in the moment. I'm, I'm not particularly interested in that. Uh, it's not about being present. It's not about being open. It's not about being with what is ultimately. Those are all kind of helpful ways of looking at it, uh, certainly. But they can also be... Uh, dead ends, if I think, if I'm too tight around seeing that's what meditation is, it's about being in the moment, it's about being present with what is, that can actually be a dead end. And make a mistake about what reality is. And we'll talk more about this. So, in the instructions that will be at 9.30 in in the morning, and in the meetings that we have, we'll talk about how that works uh, the um, meeting with Chris and myself over the days. What we are really interested in, in the instructions and the meetings, is, is meeting you where you are in your experience of the moment. And that you can uh, learn more and more to do that too, and do that re- really uh, in a helpful way. Every evening there will also be a talk, a Dharma talk in the evening. It will be approximately an hour, maybe a little less, maybe a little longer. Okay? Um, and in addition to meeting you, actually in the Dharma talks, what we're really interested in as well is, is kind of um, exploring the framework of what we're doing, conceptually as well. So Chris and I have had several conversations leading up to this retreat. And we decided to kind of split it into a little bit, not so black and white. And Chris was given an assignment um, to kind of lay out the Buddhist map of, of the, the territory, the Buddhist conceptual framework of how the path works and what we're trying to do and, and where we're going. And that takes time to digest. It takes time to understand that and to really kind of uh, help uh, use that to, to help give one's, one's bearings. 
It takes time uh, to consolidate that. So that's a really, really important part of what we want to explore. I was given different assignments slightly, uh, which is to um, stretch things at the edges um, and to question things and to challenge, uh, to challenge you, in fact, and myself. So every time uh, in, in, when I say challenge, I also mean challenge myself and question, I also mean question myself and stretch, I also mean stretch myself. And so some of what goes in the talks might be a little subtle in terms of the, the ideas involved, might be complex, might be difficult, maybe. Um, and we're not just interested in the now, how you feel during that hour when one of us is talking. I'm not, I'm not just interested in that hour. I'm not interested in you having a pleasant hour of listening to one of us talk. I mean, I hope you do, but uh, <laughs> that's, not, that's not the primary interest. It may not even be right where you are at this moment. And so, certainly with the talks, and I think I've always thought about talks this way, it, it probably will really pay to re-listen in, in the evening talks. And there'll be quite a lot in them. So we have this heart, uh, and that's important. And we have ideas, we have a head too. The Dharma... Uh, said is said to be it addresses suffering. It addresses uh, dukkha. So this word dukkha, d-u-k-k-h-a, means suffering, dissatisfaction. What does suffering need in my life? What does it need? And sometimes what it needs is heart. And we're talking a lot about that on this retreat. It needs the heart to open, to soften, to bring forth compassion, to relate differently. And we talk, I talk a lot about that in, when I teach, a lot about the heart's relationship with suffering because it's so crucial. But I would also say something extra. What does suffering need? It needs the heart, but it also needs to engage my intellect and my imagination. Suffering needs to engage my intellect and my imagination. Very often as Buddhists, we tend to leave those things out. Imagination, what on earth could that have to do with it? And intellect. And by those, I don't mean f- imagining what I could do with this problem or having an, a bright idea about a possible solution. I mean uh, my, my ideation and my whole way I'm imagining a whole uh, myself and the whole scenario. We'll talk more about this. The ideas, I think, this is one of the things I want to emphasize now because it will run through the retreat a little bit and pick it up. An idea, a concept, a view that I have, it doesn't just exist up here. It has enormously powerful effects psychologically and on my heart, uh, on my eyes. It has an enormous influence on the way I see things. Going back to what I said earlier, Dharma practice is practicing developing ways of seeing, and that comes out of ideas and concepts. They don't just stay up here. Actually, I think we're always in the grasp of some idea or concept or view or other. We're always, always in the grasp of it. So it's not abstract. If we talk about ideas uh, in the the evenings, it's not abstract at all. We're talking about what actually is gripping uh, my heart, gripping my sense of existence, my sense of self, gripping the way I see. I may not be aware of that. So we're also interested in, someone put it, unwrapping the unconsciousness uh, that surrounds ideas. 
That's really, really key. And sometimes that's a little troublesome, isn't it? It's a little, doesn't, you know, it can feel like there's a rub with that. There's a, a, a conflict even. Heraclitus was a pre-Socratic philosopher. I, I don't even know when he lived, thousands of years ago. Uh, actually, a lot of people more recently regard him as the first real psychologist or the first psychoanalyst in a way. He's not so much a philosopher. The real deep understanding of consciousness and the psyche. And he said, uh, polemos, the Greek polemos, which we get our word polemic from, uh, which means strife. Polemos is the father of all things. So no, no rub, no fruit. And even Buddhist ideas, you know, sometimes we, we don't see how we're wrapping contemporary con- assumptions around that. And in the Buddhist time they wrapped, uh, and he did too, uh, his contemporary assumptions around that. So all this feels very important and, and, and we, will, we will be going into it. Uh, you will experience calm on this retreat. Um, you, you definitely will. I, I was going to say, I promise, is that wise? <laughs> um, you will. Um, but we're not into quietism. In other words, that's really not the main point. Um, retreat is also about questioning deeply, really questioning deeply. And sometimes sometimes that questioning deeply brings agitation. It brings agitation to the being. And that's uncomfortable, but it's a good thing. It's a good thing. It's a blessing. So I don't know. It may be in some of the evening talks. It may feel a little dense. It may feel like it's too much, too many ideas. Um, what happens to me if I don't understand something completely? Well, that's important. Um, but it may be that for some of the evening talks that you come with a different attitude to uh, there's a different thing going on and you bring a different attitude. And if you really don't like it, it's just an hour about. And it's, <laughs> it's really not that much out of your, your day and, and your week. And like I say, we'll probably pay repeated listings. That's why Yuha is doing the taping here and it will all be on the web. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.